0: This is a CBC Podcast.
1: Hi there, I'm David Cochran, and this is the Power and Politics Podcast for January 22nd. Federal ministers gather in Montreal for a winter retreat. We'll talk to Minister of Public Safety and Intergovernmental Affairs, Dominique Leblanc, about the focus of this meeting, plus a significant shift in immigration policy. The Minister of Immigration, Mark Miller, makes the case for capping international study permits. And will this strategy session do anything to turn around the Liberals' low polling numbers? The Power Panel takes a look at some fresh data. Liberal cabinet ministers are gathered here in Montreal to strategize before returning to Parliament next week. They say they're focused on some key issues affecting Canadians like housing and affordability, but the Leader of the Opposition says the Liberals are in a different kind of retreat.
0: He's retreating on everything he has done over the last eight years, right? After eight years of Trudeau, life costs more, work doesn't pay, housing costs have doubled, crime, chaos, drugs and disorder are common in our streets and he divides to distract from all that he has broken. Justin Trudeau is not worth
2: the cost.
1: Joining us now to discuss the focus of this retreat is Dominic Leblanc, Minister of Public Safety and Intergovernmental Affairs. Minister, good to see you again. Hi, good evening, David. Uh, obviously, Pierre Polyev is not impressed with the agenda you set out here. <laughs> Surprising, uh, but, isn't it? Well, I, I'm as shocked as you are. Um, you, you come here at an interesting time. We, we have seen the new polling data, once again, a persistent double-digit lead for the Conservatives over the Liberals. What's your assessment of why Canadians seem to be losing faith in, in your government?
3: Canadians have gone through a very difficult period uh, in the last number of years. I mean, going back to COVID, after COVID, interest rates went up, uh, inflation was an issue, global supply chains. It's been tough on millions and millions of Canadians. So they're understandably concerned and worried, largely about economic issues. Uh, They're concerned about issues like auto theft. They're concerned about... uh, issues around the cost of housing. Uh, they want a government that's focused on those issues. They want a government that's taking concrete steps uh, to do things that will improve their situation quickly. That's what we're discussing here in these meetings in Montreal, David. Standing in front of a, of a sign and insulting people or pointing the finger at others doesn't actually solve the circumstance of these millions of Canadians who have understandable concerns. So we're doing the difficult but important work of trying to alleviate the affordability pressure, trying to deal with the housing uh, pressures, and we'll continue to do that. Increasingly, though, I mean, you see it in in this data, and I'm sure you hear it, uh, you know, when when you travel
1: around the country, that that people are skeptical, if not completely doubtful, that liberals at this stage in the life cycle are the right party to solve a lot of these problems that you've outlined. How, How do you counter that?
3: Well, first of all, by not getting distracted from the work we need to do. Uh, You've been around politics a long time, David. You see these stories that become sort of common uh, acceptance that this or that particular political party's in trouble, and then circumstances evolve, the situation changes, people's perceptions come and go. Tom Mulcair had a transition team in 2015 meeting to plan his takeover of the government, and he lost the election and was kicked out of the NDP leadership some months later. So uh, I think it's important for us not to be... Uh, distracted from the work that Canadians elected us to do. In the next election, Canadians will have an opportunity uh, to uh, evaluate the work of the government and and to choose between real alternatives. Uh, None of the above isn't on a ballot. When you go to vote, there's a series of real candidates, real choices, real political parties, Uh, We think that our government and our party is focused on and will bring significant improvements to the challenges the Canadians are facing, but there's a lot of work to do, and we haven't finished that work.
1: Do you have the time, though, to finish that work? Let's look at some of the key issues on housing. The Prime Minister on down have, have admitted you were slow. To respond to this. We've seen a flurry of announcements since Sean Fraser has been the housing minister for the housing accelerator, but each of those announcements is the promise of housing, the potential of housing, rather than the reality of housing that's ready to go into the market right now. It's going to take some time. Well, I don't the, share
3: your, your pessimism. I mean, it's not... <laughs> I'm it, trying to be we, realistic. We, well, no, but we heard from the mayor of Montreal who met with us today and talked concretely about affordable housing that's being built right now foundations that were poured before the the ground froze in this city in montreal so there's a lot of work to do i'm not Mm -hmm. pretending that the work is complete but i i wouldn't say that we haven't made an important dent in that work but we need partners we need provinces we need municipalities we need the private sector we need not-for-profit groups um they're all engaged i mean this is a a necessarily the housing issue you, you that's the one we were talking about necessarily requires. Uh, different orders of government to work together, it requires private capital. So it's complicated, uh, but it doesn't mean because it's not fixed tomorrow morning that we shouldn't continue to do the work. We've been doing a lot of work, but we need to do more work and quickly. Um, And that's certainly my conversations as the Intergovernmental Affairs Minister with Premier Eby last week in British Columbia and Premier Canoe in Manitoba. I spoke to Premier Ford. Uh, Again, on the weekend, they want to have a government that's an active partner in this area because we all recognize that it's very important to Canadians.
1: You had presentations today from economists on how to deal with the cost of living, how to deal with concerns about a possible recession in in the Canadian economy. We spoke with Kevin Milligan and Armin Yelnisian when they came out later, and and they actually are arguing that what's required to some degree is big government investments, what they call the care economy, long-term care, child care, health care. Is that a direction you're willing to go in as a government? Because if you go back to the fall economic statement, it seemed like the messaging was more towards a little bit of restraint and returning to more traditional levels of government spending after the big spending days of the pandemic. Do you have the fiscal room and desire to go there?
3: So uh, th- that, that is an interesting debate. I found it interesting to listen to those economists present to the cabinet earlier today. Um, but on the issue, for exa- example, of a care economy, uh the issue of something as important as child care for families. That's a big affordability issue. Well, we've already built into our fiscal framework, into the government spending plans, a permanent child care program nationally that lowers the cost to ten dollars a day. That is a very significant investment, but that's not new spending or additional spending. That's already uh, built into the government spending plan, uh, as is the hundreds of billions of dollars over a ten year period that we're transferring to the provinces for health care. So my colleague, the health minister, uh, talked to us about the uh, agreements that he's close to finalizing with provinces. So to use two examples y- you raised, yes, we have to do a lot in those areas. That's what building an inclusive, prosperous economy requires. The good news is we've been doing that work also for a long a period of time, and we've done a great deal in the last few years, but that spending is already accounted for. So um, I think we need to continue to make those thoughtful investments uh, to ensure that our economy is inclusive and the affordability issues are dealt with head-on. But as the Minister of Finance has said, there's not an unlimited amount of spending mm. at a difficult time. federal government took a huge amount of the burden of covid Uh, Some provinces, including my own in New Brunswick, are facing record surpluses. So there can also be in the fiscal federalism a bit of an adjustment in terms of the priorities that some of our provincial partners uh, can also share with us as well.
1: A big priority for this year, you're going to be hearing from, well, the, Canada's ambassador to the United States on the upcoming U.S. election. Uh, Trump won was difficult for this government. NAFTA was put on the table, tensions between the two countries were high uh, because of the uncertain nature of him as a, as a president. How worried are you as a government that he's going to win and come back?
3: Well, we're going to hear from Ambassador Hillman tomorrow. I had a chance to talk with her in, in the late fall when I was in Washington. Um, look, Canadians have been increasingly interested in U.S. politics. There are retired school teachers in my riding that spend more time watching CNN than CBC Newsworld. I know it's shocking. David, for you, but it, it became it became in Mr. Trump's administration a reality where Canadians became interested in, in American presidential politics. So this is going to be a year where that takes up a lot of attention. Our focus is to be ready for whatever government the Americans elect. We don't choose the American government. They will. Uh, any government of Canada needs to have a constructive, robust, trusting relationship with their American counterparts. Uh, The ambassador will talk to us about those opportunities. And in an election year, um, the American, the the sources of power in the American government, the American Congress are so diffuse, that state governors, yeah. influential senators and uh, representatives in Congress um, can also have a lot of influence and of course it's a bipartisan context. So that's the work we're going to do and we'll wait to see who Americans elect in November.
1: But as Trump seems to be surging, I mean he is uh, the runaway front runner for the Republican nomination. I think that's a pretty clear assessment of where things are, especially with Ron DeSantis uh, dropping out. Your party has seemed to see an opportunity to exploit that in linking him to Pierre Polyev, you know, comparing him to the MAGA style right wing politics as a way of trying to discredit the conservative leader and perhaps help your political fortunes. I mean, are you hopeful of a Trump win because of how it might change, you know, an external event that could change the political dynamic? Because some people in your party seem to think this is something they can exploit.
3: We're we're not going to spend a lot of time being hopeful on a particular outcome in an American election. Our job as a government is to work, as I said, with the government that Americans will choose. Um, it's true that Mr. Poliev uh, practices a divisive form of politics with a considerable amount of misinformation. Uh, he's not afraid to assert a falsehood. Uh, in a video or in a social media post, Uh, Canadians will judge that in an election and Canadians have access to trusted sources of information that increasingly are calling out that kind of political tactic. Um, Our job is to present to Canadians a progressive, inclusive government that has uh, a plan to deal with the issues that are concerning them right now and a plan to build an economy that works for them in the future. That's what we're focused on. I'm not worried about Mr. Polyev's platform.
1: Mr. Polyev and his supporters refer to your government as divisive. You know, going back to the convoy and vaccine mandate, ACC this is big issues that drove a big wedge in, into Canadian society. Do you think we're headed for perhaps one of the more polarized elections in the country's history? Because it certainly seems as if the pol- political conversation in the country is
3: moving to the extremes. Uh, I certainly hope not. Uh, I think that Canadians benefit when there's a thoughtful exchange of ideas, including real points of of divergence between political parties. That's healthy in a democracy. It's important that political parties can stick to the basic facts of a discussion. Mr. Poliev has had some challenge doing that. Uh, It's not not the case with, with other political parties, and it wasn't the case with some predecessor leaders of the Conservative, the Progressive Conservative Party, that used to exist years ago, you might remember that, uh-huh. or even the Conservative Party of Canada. So, But at the end of the day, our focus, uh, David, when the election comes, uh, will be to tell Canadians the work we've done to make their lives better and to offer them a hopeful, positive plan. And if others want to be divisive and focus on personal attacks, Canadians will judge. It didn't work in 2015 for Mr. Harper. And, I don't know if it'll work for in twenty twenty five for Mr. Polyev, but uh, we have a lot of work to do between now and then.
1: Okay. Minister of Public Safety and Intergovernmental Affairs, Dominic Leblanc, thanks for your time.
3: Thanks, David. Thank you.
1: The federal government will cap the number of student permits over the next two years. It's part of the government's response to the housing crisis amidst concerns about the impact of growing numbers of international students on the housing market. In some provinces, the total reduction of permits will be approximately 50 percent, with a specific goal of taking action against private colleges.
4: We hear the word bad actors bountied around. Um, I know my institutions are under heavy regulation inside the province of Ontario, and
1: we wouldn't want it any other way. We have more reaction from the National Association of Career Colleges coming up, but first, let's hear from the minister responsible. Immigration Minister Mark Miller joins me now here at the Cabinet Retreat in Montreal. Minister, welcome back to the show. Thanks for having on, David. Yeah, You spoke today when you announced this cap about bad actors offering sham degrees and some of these institutions need to close, in your view. How many institutions do you think need to close in Canada?
0: Well, uh, if you look at... If it's hard to estimate, David, and I think this is where you look at the limit of the federal government to be able to go in jurisdictionally and close places but uh certainly, if you look at places in Surrey or Brampton and Mississauga, as well as elsewhere, you see degree granting institutions that are giving fake business degrees, and basically people are working during the week doing some work on the weekend and um and then getting you know perhaps a three year ability to work in Canada and then hoping that they'll be able to stay here um, that isn in 't the international student program that was devised, and the visas that are uh, hard, are sought after by by people looking to um, get the best education in the world, including what 's offered in canada so um, There are a significant amount of them. The the fact that they have exploded in the last couple of years is a sign that we need to rein things in and and get this under control. It's a responsibility that we share with provinces.
1: Are we talking dozens of institutions? Are we talking hundreds of institutions? What's your sense of the order of magnitude here? That I'd
0: I'd venture to think that we are... depending on how they're organized in the hundreds. So we also have the ecosystem that's been created that's been very, very lucrative, where people pay four or five times what a domestic student would pay. Uh, and no one's immune from that. The largest institutions in Canada uh, to, to, to the smallest. Um, this has become big business, uh, and you have a lot of players trying to make a quick buck out of this. And the question to the government of Canada, obviously, uh, given the economic uh, impact of this, is, is this money that we really want or need in Canada? And I've, well, I see it as... Uh, a, a short-term gain with a lot of long-term pain and we need to sort of change that conversation.
1: You mentioned three specific areas, Brampton, Mississauga and Surrey, so is this really a British
0: Columbia and Ontario problem, at least in terms of scale? No, no one's immune to it. I mean we, what we've seen, uh, there are very few provinces that will not be hit by the cap that we imposed today. There are some provinces that have been regulating this better than others and there are some that just haven't availed themselves of the international, of international students as others have. Um, I named Ontario a- a- NBC uh, but there will be significant ratcheting back in other provinces as well, with the exception of Saskatchewan, Alberta, um, Newfoundland, Quebec, and, uh, and, and the territories. So uh, this is significant, but given the increase that we've seen over the last three years, um, it's something that we need to get under control. But we also need to put this on the table to make provinces do the jobs that they are supposed to do. The Auditors General of many provinces have pointed out the fact that this needs to be brought under control by provinces where they have the surgical fine tools to be able to do this in a way that, that, that shores up the integrity of the system.
1: It's not just an issue, though, uh, in, in private college. I know predominantly that that's where you're seeing the challenges, but, you know, universities, uh, public colleges have turned to international students to, to make up for, quite frankly, funding gaps. So a- as you impose this cap, and you talk about Ontario and B.C., we're almost certainly going to see their allotments go down in terms of their number of permits. The knock-on effect of that as as maybe legitimate institutions are captured in this change what are your concerns there in terms of lost revenue
0: uh, for these institutions on lost opportunity for students lost revenue and frankly lost talent if this isn't done correctly Uh, if this is properly instituted i believe that provinces will be able to be put in a position where they can actually reward the good actors and really shut down and punish the bad ones they can reallocate this so that our top institutions are getting the international students and, and the revenue associated to them. Uh, no one is innocent in this, but there are some institutions that are doing this better than others, and I would hate to see some of the largest institutions that are world-renowned get punished um, for no particular reason. It's clear, though, that um, that growth is unsustainable, and it's causing uh, some carry-on effects in housing, healthcare, care, um, and the impact, the reputational impact of Canada worldwide as uh, an attractive place to do and, and, and have students study and then be able to radiate internationally, it's often become a back door for permanent residency, which is not what the program was intended to in the first place.
1: Right. So, so the elite institutions,
0: you've got carve-outs in
1: here in terms of limiting re- work permit restrictions for masters and doctoral level students and spouses and also professional faculties like law and medicine. Those institutions will probably find a way no matter what. But there's been some concern expressed since you announced this this morning about you know, the private college level, uh, sort of the entry level, say to healthcare professional workspaces, for example, of this maybe creating an unintentional labor shortage. Medical technicians, these sorts of things, uh, license- care workers.
0: Uh, how do you guard against that in implementing this? Well, we're, we'll clearly work with provinces that have those shortages and see some of the effects that it has, and and we'll be flexible in being able to grant them post graduate work permits the intention is not to ruin anyone's well thought through business model but to really deal with uh, the perverse incentives the perverse effects of an ecosystem that's gone a little awry if a province comes to us and says this particular institution uh has nurses that we'll be able to work after and there's a, there's a, there's a labor shortage we'll, we'll we'll be flexible with them but first and foremost they should take a serious look at the cap that we've imposed come back to us with our plan to deal with fraud predominantly and shut down institutions that have no reason to exist, as well as to shore up the system. I had a great conversation with uh, my colleague in British Columbia, who had already spent a tremendous amount of time coming up with a system to deal with that in British Columbia. So provinces can look to each other and look at the models that they're putting forward. Quebec has its own unique model here that um, has been robust as well. So they will be able to benefit from some cap space that hasn't been used. There are incentives here to get things right, but we need them at the table getting things right. You talk about the role the
1: provinces play playing in this. They obviously license and regulate post-secondary institutions and would have been responsible in Ontario, for example, with the growth of, of the private colleges that, that you're kind of focusing on here. But the permits were still issued by the federal government. So, so why did your department go along with the surge in the uh, approval of the permits when this was clearly
0: moving at a pace that, that doesn't, is now obviously not sustainable? Look, a couple things, and, and, and you're right in saying that, but, but to be clear, provinces are making money off this, institutions are making money off this. The government of Canada is the only one sitting at the bar not drinking, and we're about to get stiffed with the bill. Uh, and so I think that's something serious that we need to, to deal with. Um, we do have a role in the ability to use levers. They're pretty rough turning on taps and turning them off. Um, I had said previously that a national cap, if it were just imposed without having... Put some thought into it weighing it by province being fair uh, is like doing surgery with a hammer uh, we need to put provinces on notice to get their acts together but we also have a role in shoring up the role that we play in eradicating fraud it's why i announced a recognized institution model that'll separate sort of the wheat from the chaff and also a, 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 some more fraud mechanisms for example making sure that students have uh, double the financial resources to live in Canada, it's not cheap to live in Canada, as well as verifying offer letters. And then the next step, which is this, which is putting in um, a weighted cap based on the population in provinces in order to make sure that people are just dealing with responsibly with their, um, their area of jurisdiction. Um, This is largely an area that has gone uncapped for about 40 years without any problems, and we shut off the uh, taps completely during COVID with uh, a a lot of awful effects on these institutions, and we certainly heard from them. Um, But it has ballooned in the last two years, and it's time we act.
1: Is it really just the last two years? Because, I I, I mean, in some ways, I I wonder if... You, you, your analogy that everyone's at the bar and you're the only one not drinking, you're going to get stuck with the bill, but the federal government enables this in a way by approving all of the permits, right? So, like, uh, how, how did it get to the point that it was able to scale up? Because they can accept anybody they want. Nobody can get into the country without the federal approval.
0: The way it's worked, traditionally, David, is we've trusted the designated learning institutions that have been licensed by the provinces. There have been very loose uh, enforcement and um, and verification of those institutions and the federal government has had a role in fact you've seen the statistics of us uh, limiting the the levels and numbers of people that are accepted once a uh, institution sets out and gives an offer to someone so there, there has been a role um, but now it's much more accrued with the availability in um, double, doubling the financial funds and making sure that we're verifying offer letters and then putting an intake cap so to be clear um, as of today we're not taking any more applications until provinces issue a, a letter to us backing an application so they do have an interest from now until march 31st to get their houses in order or else there will be no application and permits issued um, with respect to any particular province.
1: so are the province is just not rigorous enough in, in their oversight and in their licensing and in their assessment of the institutions that were operating in their jurisdiction is that part of the problem here
0: it, it's, it is certainly part of the problem and you don't need to Trust me uh, as the politician, I hope people do, but you'd only need to see the Auditor General reports that have been issued and, and not heated in the past, and that's something. Um, uh, that will have to be listened to now or else there'll be no more visas.
1: This is a final point. I, I mean, w- you're making this move, and, and, and you've outlined the reasons why. But it's coming at a time when sort of public support for immigration is going down a little bit. It's, being, it's obviously going to be very politicized in the U.S. election cycle that we're going to see. Do you worry about having to take measures like this and, and the knock-on effect of that and, and Canadians' attitude towards immigration? Scarcity of housing, for example, has hardened some people's opinions about bringing in a, as many people as we do each year. Where do you see this fitting into that continuum?
0: Well, I think Canadians trust us to do the right thing, and this is certainly the right thing. Uh, Having a system that um, has run amok doesn't help uh, us face the headwinds that are clearly facing the Canadian consensus that has been very positive around immigration. obviously worry about the international students that you're studying today. I'm not out there to target them. There's uh, they deserve the dignity that they are entitled to as human beings Um, but clearly uh, some of them have been part of a system where they've been taken advantage of and given false hope that they may be able to stay in this country and I don't want them to be hurt. Um, Canadians still are very positive towards immigration but they've said to various levels of government that we do need to get our acts together federally provincially and territorially and be more organized when it comes to the impacts on uh, on the healthcare system the impacts on the educational system the impact on housing um, we also need to look at the other side of the equation which is the services that we've come to know and love in this country that are part of our DNA that uh, wouldn't be there without immigration and so if we shut off the taps in a way that is just reactionary and um, I believe unreasonable we'll have some effects that are far worse than uh, some of the stuff that we're seeing today but again today was not a housing announcement It will have an impact on some mm-hmm. areas of housing it was for, it was it was fundamentally um, three important measures to make sure that we have a system on international student visas that, um, that has some integrity to it. Immigration Minister Mark Miller, thanks for your time. Thanks, David.
1: All right, we're going to turn now to reaction from colleges. The new federal rules around international students may be primarily aimed at private colleges, particularly those deemed to be bad actors. I'm joined by Michael Sangster, CEO of the National Association of Career Colleges. Michael Sangster, it's good to meet you. Thank you for joining us. Thank you for having me, David. I I wonder what you made of what Minister Miller said there that there are potentially hundreds of institutions that need to close because of the role they play in what he considers to be a a, a bad faith system.
4: Well, there's a lot to unpack there with what the Minister said, and I'd just like to jump off by saying we actually support the vast majority of the actions he's been taking. There is an issue that needs to be solved across the whole post-secondary education system around international students, and we do need to make sure we're offering a robust uh, an appropriate system in place for international students who come here. I can't comment on on the number of institutions that are my members that might be harmed by this. I will say this: the latest IRCC data says that less than 10% of international students are applying to come to our colleges. We don't believe we are the problem, but we are welcome. We are welcome the opportunity to work with the province and the federal government, and his team has been excellent in working with us on finding the solutions.
1: So you say less than 10% are applying to come to your members' colleges. Is every private college out there a member of your organization? Like, they, they, this, is, is this an issue? You know what I mean by that question and that yeah, the sector is could be much larger than just who you represent?
4: I represent about 550 colleges across Canada, and it's fair to say that we represent the major players in the sector. And the vast majority of international students that are in the country would be in our institutions, but I do not represent every regulated career college in Canada.
1: Right. So do you agree then with the the minister's assessment that there could be this subset of private institutions who may or may not be your members, who could be bad faith actors, essentially uh, diploma mills and and backdoor entranceways into Canada, and that that is an issue that needs to be dealt with? Or or is he overstating the problem there, sir? Uh, uh
4: I won't put words in the minister's mouth. I will say this. We work closely with our provincial associations and we've been working closely with the Department of Immigration to find solutions when problems do arise. I think there's going to be a lot of financial pressure on institutions, not just mine, with these changes that will come in today. That being said, we do support these changes. We do support his increase in funding uh, that students must come to the country with. We think these are important actions that must be taken. But I don't have a number. I don't know how many of our institutions might struggle with these decisions taken
1: today there's always unintended consequences with big sweeping policy changes Uh, what concerns do you have there I I know the minister has said that he's willing to work with provinces and and other organizations to make sure there are no unintended consequences of true significance here Uh, but what are the areas that are potentially vulnerable to the knock-on effects of this
4: Well, I'm concerned about one major one. We're training the workforce that's needed in this country right now. We're training the support workers. You spoke to the minister about the health care system. We're training a lot of those long-term care uh, support workers. We're training logistics people. We're training cybersecurity people. And if we're not driving training more individuals to help feed the economy, to help feed those labor force needs and i encouraged i was encouraged by the minister's earlier comments that he is focused on labor force needs when he made his last changes so we're going to continue to work with the provinces. i actually spoke to minister dunlop in ontario today and she reiterated her commitment to our sector and the great work that we do training workers And if i might be a little i'll make it be a little personal for you david i'll, I'll talk about Kean college in newfoundland and labrador the federal department of labor
2: right
4: as with tech canal is making sure they're training the next generation of cybersecurity workers in Newfoundland and Labrador. We need to do that training.
1: Right. And that, of course, is Craig Tucker's company, who is the vice chair of your uh, organization, I believe, the vice chair of your board. Um, yes, yes, but is. But, but I, I, appreciate, I appreciate the role that the private colleges play in it. And I, I don't think anyone is saying that the institution or the sector in general is illegitimate. But how do you explain, um, and, and as you say, it's beyond just the private colleges, this massive growth in the numbers over the last two years, because the, Miller, the Minister said that they've been able to have an uncapped international student system for decades now, but what they've seen in the last two years, the, and the, the numbers that were accepted to get into colleges in Canada were much higher than what was even approved to come into Canada. How do you, how do you explain that?
4: We do see some individuals who are accepted to attend one of our colleges, and then will uh, be accepted to work, uh, to study in a uh, community college or a university and they will transfer over because of the postgraduate work permit that those institutions are able to offer that my members are not able to offer. We've seen that. I want to go back and just just comment quickly. His comments about Brampton and Mississauga and Surrey, uh, we agree, we have the same concerns. Communities cannot be overwhelmed with international students. And that's why we've been working with his department and the government of Ontario to try and find solutions to those issues. But we cannot add more students in some of those communities.
1: One of the issues, of course, is housing. And while this isn't a housing announcement, there is uh, the potential to reduce competition for student housing in particular. And uh, the argument we heard from people like Mike Moffitt, who's an economist who presented here uh, today to Cabinet, was that um, the the, the growth in the student population creates an incentive for investors to buy a family home, turn it into student housing, and that takes stock and supply out of the market and makes things more difficult. Universities um, often have residences, or some measure of student housing that doesn't necessarily exist in the private college system. What role do you think your industry can play in dealing with some of the housing challenges that international students are creating?
4: So we have partners that we're working with, like Forest Day and others that we're going to be announcing soon, where we try and coordinate more of that housing for our members. This housing issue has become a new concern. And I would challenge some of the numbers that are out there around the number of uh, of residences that are available in colleges or universities compared to the number of students that are there. I think we all know stories of housing shortages. Uh, we are working hard on that. I, I would add, uh, we need to build more houses, and the people we train are the ones who build those houses. Our skilled trades colleges do a wonderful job.
1: So, so Michael Sangster, I, I mean, what is uh, the bottom line of, of these policy changes? for your sector and post secondary education writ large? Because we've seen uh, international students become an important source of revenue uh, for public colleges and public universities as well. I mean, what do you think the bottom line to this change would be for the 550 institutions you represent?
4: There, there will be an impact for some institutions. I will say this, um, it, it is a lot less than is being assumed because we don't believe we have the numbers in our institutions. Uh, we've called on governments to release the numbers of where international students are placed. Uh, and we would welcome that. Um, I don't think we're gonna have the impacts that people assume we're going to have.
1: Michael Sangster, CEO of the National Association of Career Colleges, thank you so much for your time today. Thank you. A new poll from the Angus Reid Institute looks at what's motivating Canadian support for the two main parties. The Conservatives, as they have been in recent polls, are 17 points up on the Liberals at 41%, but 15% of that is primarily about blocking the Liberals from getting another term. Now, the Liberals, meanwhile, are sitting at 24%, but the bulk of their vote, 15%, is primarily about blocking Pierre Polyev from becoming Prime Minister. So, what does that mean for the next election, and what does that mean uh, as a backdrop to a cabinet retreat looking at a reset uh, of the political agenda? Okay, we're going to bring in the power panel to talk about this. Lisa Raitt is a former Conservative Cabinet Minister, now the Vice Chair of Global Investment Banking with CIBC Capital Markets. Brad Levine is with Council Public Affairs. Rob Russo is the former CBC Parliamentary Bureau Chief, now writing for The Economist. And here with me in Montreal, Jonathan Kalis, a former Quebec advisor to Prime Minister Justin Trudeau, now Senior Director at McMillan Vantage. Uh, happy Cabinet Retreat Monday, gang. Uh, Rob, why don't you pick it up from there? What, what do you make of these numbers we're seeing, this policy of blocking the other guy being a, a key motivation uh, for voters?
5: Let, let me begin with my usual caveat when it comes to polls uh, in general and uh, polls a year and a half outside of an election, that we must take them with a small boulder of salt. Um, that... that caveat being, being issued. Um, if, if this is, uh, what the next election campaign is going to look like, and if you look at the way politics is being conducted right now, it comes down to a campaign that is about either fear, loathing, or dread. Um, Uh, fear of Pierre Poiliev, according to a lot of the people from uh, the Liberal Party, uh, uh, fully, fully one-third of their vote, it looks like, is coming from, uh, or two-thirds of their vote is based on fear. Uh, A third of the uh, Bloc Québécois vote might go to the Liberals because of fear. A third of the uh, NDP vote might go to the Liberals because of fear. Uh, And then there's the loathing part. Uh, 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 About a third of those who would uh, vote for the Conservatives, it's because they loathe Justin Trudeau. So we have fear versus loathing, uh, loathing and both sides are going to probably try and claim dread as part of it. Uh, and it doesn't look for like an appetizing campaign this far out. I, I really hope that, uh, that voters uh, uh, sort of concentrate less on who they like and dislike and what can the parties and the candidates do for them and the issues that they care about. But right now, mm. that looks like it's going to be secondary to fear, loathing, and dread.
1: Brad, if you look at the NDP number, they're sitting at about 20% in this, but about 7 percentage points of that 20 uh, is likely to switch to the Liberals to block uh, a Polyev government. Uh, What kind of a threat does that pose to the NDP and what looks like we're headed towards a pretty polarized election?
2: Well, I think we say that before every election, don't we, David? I mean, (laughs) they're all rather polarizing. Uh, and they're, they're, they've always been, and this is the fundamental structural problem. That is, when you have a multi-party system that is that is forced within, forced to work within a two-party structure like first past the post, this is what you have. This is not the first election. This is not the first interim poll that that would suggest that there's a group of of Canadian voters out there who are motivated by either stopping. Uh, uh, One party or they're motivated by seeing, uh, you know, uh, their party uh, win. So none of this is new. I think what the what the issue is, is when you take a look at Angus Reid's graphs when you're showing, you know, just it was just in the spring of 2022, the liberals and the conservatives were rather tied. Now there's a, a big gap. Who's, who's leaving the Liberals? Mostly um, blue, uh, blue-red switchers, that is those who are fairly comfortable uh, mm-hmm. you know, with either party. It, and it really all depends on where you live. And this is something that the New Democratic Party has been uh, you know, working on uh, since 1961. That is, in pockets of the country where it's the New Democrats who've got the best likelihood of defeating the Conservatives, if that's your motivation then you stay with the NDP, the Liberals will come out and say, no, no, it's us here in Winnipeg or, you know, or in, in uh, you know, northern Manitoba, when in fact all that does is elect more Conservatives. We've been working on this for, for, for decades. At the end of the day, the, the message, I think, that resonates, that motivates, and that's the other thing, it's the enthusiasm gap. Right now the Conservatives have a high enthusiasm rate. Right. Liberals have a low, that's a problem, because if you're not motivated to get to the polls, whether you want to stop somebody or elect somebody in, if you're not motivated, you're in big trouble. And that's, but there's 18, 18 months to the next election likely, so there's lots of time to, 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 to fix that. But I like the fact that, you know, there's four points separating uh, the NDP and the, and the Liberals nationally, and in much of the country, the NDP are well-positioned to defeat the Conservatives. That's got to give the uh, caucus some, some, uh, some energy in Edmonton uh, uh, this week for the NDP. Jonathan, there does seem to be a motivation challenge for Liberals. I mean, you're not going to uh,
1: disagree with that, I, I would assume. I mean, how, how do they re-energize that when you look at these numbers and the, the gaps just staying like it was an 8-point lead, a 10-point lead? Now you're seeing 15 and 17-point leads uh, for the Conservatives against the backdrop of this reset retreat that we're covering.
6: I thought that was the August retreat was the reset (laughs) retreat.
1: This is the reboot? I don't know. Um, Part two. Yeah.
6: Um, Listen, I I think that the enthusiasm sort of gap and the enthusiasm factor is is important. Uh, One of the things you often don't see in polls uh, but is really important is, you know, whatever the question is, will you vote for party X or is this issue really important to you, is how much do you care about it? How much is that important? So if people are telling pollsters... Listen, I I don't really like Justin Trudeau, but I might consider voting for him because I don't like Pierre Polyev more than I don't like Justin Trudeau. How much is that a deciding factor in their vote? There's also a question of whether some people may just say, I'm not gonna go vote. Mm -hmm. And you see that in the States as well. I think that many would argue that Joe Biden won the last election because in terms of swing voters, people had had it with Donald Trump and i think you're seeing that again right now joe biden isn't pulling particularly well his approvals are fairly low and in some head-to-heads trump has a small gap of, of a lead but really is this a question of is that his ceiling right uh, and the same thing will come here i think that at the end of the day there's still a question of many canadians don't know pierre polyev he hasn't been forced to really talk about specific policies. What will he do? He's going to talk about balancing the budget. What will he cut? What are his views on a whole bunch of issues that he hasn't had to talk about because right now he can deliver his message. The questions don't come to him, he sort of delivers Mm. answers. So there's a lot of unknowns. Is there time? Yes, there's over 18 months. Are things looking rosy for the Liberals? Certainly not, but I think that there's still a lot of questions and, and what happens in the States also I think will have an impact.
1: Lisa, on that, do you think what happens in the States will have an impact? As Jonathan says, I know this is something you hear from liberals who are going to be talking about it at this cabinet retreat. I mean, do you think that's an external factor that can change things here? No, I don't
4: actually. I know that there is a great desire to link here to what's happening in the movement in the United States. I think Canadians aren't necessarily going to conflate the two, but they're certainly going to attempt to the Liberal Party to do it, and I have a concern about that because if you think about this in the long term, David. Um, let's say Mr. Trump does win. Let's say that Justin Trudeau has to look at him across at a G8, G7, G20 meeting, and it's been nine months, 18 months, of him hammering on how bad, how bad Trump is and how, uh, how Pierre is just like Trump. I, I don't think that's good for the country in general, for them to take this kind of tack. And if they're thinking that it's not going to be noticed by the politics in the United States and it's not going to harm us in the long term, then I think they're being incredibly naive.
1: Yeah, Rob, I don't think there's any doubt that it's going to be noticed, and and, and it will be seen, and it will be heard, and undoubtedly could very much become a flashpoint uh, should Trump prove successful.
5: Yeah. But um, ask any politician who wants to save a snout if they're not prepared to sacrifice some some things in the long term to gain gain electoral power in the short term. I think the answer would be yes. I I like the analogy between uh, what uh, Biden uh, is going through and and Justin Trudeau is going through here, um, that they both see the other as a motivating factor for a reluctant base. I think the difference is, here in Canada, uh, whereas Trump is a known commodity, Pierre Poilier is still an unknown commodity, uh, and... If he had any success in the last year, it was trying to blunt that image of him as the guy who has the unerring instinct for the jugular. Um, he, he ran in a little bit of trouble with that, I thought, last week by, by going after uh, Quebec mayors. Not, not necessarily the Montreal mayor, because he has no hope of winning very many seats there. But the Quebec City mayor, I thought mm-hmm. that was confusing, because there are lots of conservatives in Quebec City, lots of people who would want to vote for uh, Poilievre, and I'm not sure that he helped himself to be seen by going after a relatively popular mayor in Quebec City, but he still has an opportunity. There's a challenge for Poilievre uh, and an opportunity in that if he can blunt that fear factor, uh, he, he, he could do well. Brad, what's your thoughts? yeah I mean
2: listen one of the one of the big things that, and that's why they're spending millions of dollars on TV ads with this kid you know working on a puzzle of the map of Canada. I mean they're softening up polyev's image they're trying to kind of undo some of that earlier uh, you know jugular style uh, you know populist uh, hard edge uh, of polyev sanding that down uh, he's a very good communicator um, and he's he's obviously motivating uh, is not only his base but he's expanding that base um, the, the one thing that the that the opposition have, and this is this is you know my my call to you know my colleagues in the New Democratic Party, Pauliev should be the target of Jagmeet Singh. Jagmeet Singh should use every opportunity to go after him, hammer and tong. They're fighting over much of the same uh, voter base in uh, enough pockets of this country where it makes abundant sense. If the approval ratings of Justin Trudeau, there's, you know you're you're kicking a man when he's already down. There's no there's no blood from that stone anymore. But if Singh can come across as the guy who can take on Pierre Polyev, and if there are only four points uh, separating Singh and Trudeau uh, in today's Angus Reid poll, then coming out and becoming the Polyev fighter will attract, not only motivate the base and get that enthusiasm gap up for the NDP, uh, and, and that'll help with fundraising, but it will also show uh, progressive liberals that, that in this election, this upcoming election, it's actually Singh who's got the better chance of taking on Paulie as opposed to Trudeau who's out of, out of, uh, who's out of gas and, and showing no signs of real life uh, anymore.
1: Okay, uh, gang, uh, I don't know who's out of gas, but we're out of time. i got to say goodbye. I want to thank the power panel for joining me. Jonathan Kalis here in Montreal. Lisa Wright, Brad Levine, and Rob Russo. Thanks so much, gang. See you in a week. Thanks,
5: David. See you, David.
1: That's it for today. If you like this episode, please follow the pod and catch our next live show on CBC News Network. We're on weekdays at 5 p.m. Eastern Time. I'm David Cochran. Thanks for listening.